today at Matthew's account, what starts the last week of Jesus' life on earth. So please turn your Bibles to Matthew 21, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Matthew 21, looking at Matthew's account of the crowning of the King of Kings and the triumphal entry. Matthew 21, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this passage, so much rich truth in this passage. We pray that you would help even now, Lord, to give out the truth and help us to grasp what you would have from this passage as we go into this Holy Week thinking about the events of what happened with you. Open up our hearts and our minds and the Holy Spirit even now empower and work to bring glory to yourself. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. And because we live in America, I would venture to say that we know very little or have probably never seen a crowning of a king. May come soon, possibly, <laughs> but not yet. Some of you may or may not have lived long enough to see the crowning of Queen Elizabeth. I was interested in the crowning of a king and went back into the archives of town of time and found a clip from the crowning of King George VI. It was quite an affair of much pomp and pageantry. There were up to two million people waiting outside to watch the royal procession, which included, as you can imagine, stately horse-drawn carriages. The procession included the royal army, which all led to Westminster Abbey for the crowning of King George VI, which was on May 12, 1937. It was quite an affair with up to 8,000 waiting inside to witness the crowning. The ceremony went sort of like this. The king signed an oath saying that I will do all of these things. He is anointed with oil. A robe is put on the king. And he receives a ring of sapphire with 
a cross of rubies. He's given a sword which speaks of the merging of the earthly and the divine and signifies, got this from the Bible, that he will care for orphans and widows and serve the Lord in this life and the life to come. He is given two scepters, one with a cross, which speaks of his earthly powers, and one with a dove, which speaks of his divine guidance. Last, of course, is the crown. It's placed on his head, and the people shout, God save the king, God save the king, God save the king. Now the king is crowned. The fact of the matter is that many who are kings today have very little governmental power and are called king in name only. Just saying. Then the officials come around and touch his crown and kiss his left cheek. Not sure what that symbolizes. <laughs> It is said that on Queen Victoria's crown was made of rubies and sapphires, and in the very middle of it was not a one carat, not a two carat, not even a five carat diamond, but a 309 carat diamond. Now ladies, that's what you call a rock. <laughs> and get this, not only was the diamond on her head that much, but the scepter which she held in her hand had a diamond on top of it that was even more than 309 carat diamond. If you can imagine that, it was a whopping 516 carats. Now we come to the crowning of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is not like any other crowning that we have seen before. But it is, in fact, the most significant crowning in the world. It was di very different from the crownings we may have seen on TV or on YouTube. The crowning I'm talking about is a real and true crowning of not just a king, but the true and only king of kings. Remember this. It's Jesus' last week on earth. And his very last public act before he would take his journey to the cross to be crucified. Just a little background on what was going on here. A few weeks before this, Jesus had been in Galilee. He had ministered there and had preached, taught, and healed, just as he had done in other cities. Oftentimes, this event doesn't get much attention in our celebrations leaving up, leaving it up to Resurrection Day. Most often we hear about Good Friday, Resurrection Day, but not very much is said about his triumphal entry. Almost every year we watch a movie before Resurrection Day called The Passion of the Christ. And even in this movie, the scene of the triumphal entry goes by so quickly as if it is insignificant. This was indeed a very important event in Jesus' divine ministry on earth. So here's the scene before us. Jesus was going through the city of Jericho, and there he met the man who children sing about as the wee little man who climbed 
who was in a sycamore tree, namely Zacchaeus. Here he also healed two blind men, and one of them was blind Bartimaeus. Such compassion he had even as he knew that in just a few short days, he would be headed to Calvary. So, he makes his last journey to Jerusalem. It has been a few weeks since he left Galilee and finished his ministry in Jericho. He, along with two million others, were on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate none other than the Passover. Of course, Passover was the celebration and remembrance of what happened with the 10th plague in Egypt with the death of the firstborn. The Israelites were spared from this because they were instructed to prepare a lamb for each household and blood was to be applied to the lintel or the top of the doorpost, which we find in Exodus 12:7. As a family, we allow our children to do this each year with some red water paint on one of our doorposts. As we consider afresh all the events leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. So as you can imagine, that doorpost is somewhat stained, but <laughs> very memorable. The blood put on the doorposts would save each household from the destroyer of the angel of the Lord, from Exodus 12, 23. It is estimated that the number of lambs that were killed during the Passover was around 260,000. It is estimated that the number <coughs> uh, Jewish law rather required one lamb to be slaughtered for every 10 people. As the people were all going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, little did they know that the very Passover lamb himself was right in their midst. If only they had thought for a moment as they were taking their Passover lambs to Jerusalem, that they were literally passing over the true Passover lamb. Now let's look back at the passage in verse 1 where it says, when they had approached Jerusalem, had come to Bethphage. Let's stop there. <clears throat> now he ascends to Jerusalem. If you know anything about the landscape of Jerusalem, it seems to go up, up, up. So when it says, and when they had approached Jerusalem, it is really talking about when Jesus left Jericho and went up to Jerusalem. This would have only been about 17 miles, but it would have been 3,000 feet in elevation. I need to reiterate this again. What you have to understand is that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, this is really the end of his three-year ministry. His other 30 years were spent mostly out of the public eye. Jesus was about to complete the mission for which his heavenly father had sent him. So we can call this his final ascent. We don't know very much about the place Bethphage at all. Actually, this is really the only time it is mentioned in scripture is in reference to the triumphal entry. 
All we know that it was a small town that was near the Mount of Olives. What we do know is that it was in close proximity to Bethany. So it is more than likely that Jesus arrived in Bethphage and then goes to Bethany, which was only about two miles away. In John's account of this, in John 12, John says, Jesus, therefore, six days before Passover, came to Bethany. So why would Jesus go to Bethany? What's important and significant about him going to Bethany? Well, what important resurrection happened in Bethany? The resurrection of whom? Lazarus. Thank you. It's the resurrection of Lazarus. Bethany was very special and familiar to him. And this was also the place where Mary and Martha had made supper for him. And, of course, we remember that Martha was the one in the kitchen who was doing what? Serving. So get this in your minds, friends. This is Jesus' last week on earth, and he is on his way to Jerusalem, headed for the cross. So think about it. He wanted to spend some time with his dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Other than his disciples, they were really the dearest friends that he had on earth. In other words, he knew all that he would encounter during this last week of his life on earth and wanted to be in the company of his dear friends. These were friends who truly cared about him. What we have to understand is that he was about to go through some of the greatest sorrow in his life as Judas, who had been with him and knew him close up and personal, would soon do what? Betray him. And the rest of the disciples would abandon him. It was in the very place of Bethany where Mary anointed his feet with costly perfume. And I guess one could call this Jesus' earthly anointing. Of the king, this is his earthly anointing as a king before he goes into Jerusalem. And just to give you a little bit of a timeline, six days before the Passover would have put this on a Saturday. One commentator put it this way. This would have been six days before the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb the true sacrifice, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world is to be offered six days from the nails, six days from the thorns, the spit, the cursings, the spear, the crown, the hatred, the bitterness, the sin-bearing, the loneliness of being God-forsaken. Six days, that's all. On the next day, which would have been Sunday or the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, many Jews came to see Jesus and many also probably came to get a glimpse at Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. 
Because Lazarus was a living testimony of Jesus' supernatural power and a threat to the chief priests, John 12.10 says they sought how they might put Lazarus to death as well. Now, I know that we all call this Sunday what? Palm Sunday. You guys are right. Good class. And believe that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And I hate to be the one to burst your bubble or notion or celebration of Palm Sunday on this Sunday. But just a little insight into the day. John 12, 12 tells us that it was on the next day, which would have been Monday, despite Christian tradition of Sunday. It was on Monday that Jesus left Bethany and came to Bethphage, preparing to make his way to Jerusalem to enter through the east gate of the city. And you may say, Christopher, how can you be so sure about that? Well, for one, the Mosaic law affirms this day. The Mosaic law required sacrificial lambs for Passover to be selected on the 10th day of the first month on the Nicene Nisan calendar. And you may be asking, what is Nisan? And no, it's not a car. It is the first month on the Jewish calendar and coincides with March and April on our calendar. And it's the beginning of spring month, so the lambs were to be kept in the household until sacrificed on the 14th. This is found in Exodus 12, 2 to 6. In the year that Jesus was crucified, it was AD 30 or 33. The 10th of Nisan was the Monday of Passover week. If this was the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem triumphantly, which I believe it was, he would have received, he would have been received into the hearts of the Jewish people as a nation on the very same day that the people had taken the sacrificial lambs into their homes. The very same day. Friends, Jesus fulfills the symbolism in the smallest details. So he would have been received by his people on the 10th of Nisan. He was crucified on Friday the 14th of Nisan as the true Passover lamb for the sins of the world. It was not just that Jesus would die, but that he would die on the day of the Passover. So Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Monday, and this was the day traditionally that the Jews chose their lamb for sacrifice. And I know that some of you were school teachers and into history and, to, and dates. To be a little more specific about the date, Daniel used two sets of numbers to describe the time between the announcement to the coming of the king. The numbers were seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Not to get too technical, but what do, what do we think of when we say a week? Seven days. We think of seven days, but the Jews also had weeks. But to Jews, a week was not seven days, but seven years. So, seven weeks would be 49 years. This was the time it took to rebuild the city, and the three score weeks would be 434 years. 
So when added together would be 483 years and Jesus arrived in Jerusalem exactly 483 years later. And what you have to remember is that the Jewish calendar only had 360 days, unlike our calendar, which has how many? 365. You guys are doing great. So in days, it would have been 173, 880 days after the command to rebuild Jerusalem. So we know that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, April 6, 32 AD, which was exactly 173,880 days after the command to rebuild Jerusalem. This was the very day that Jesus offered himself to the whole world. He set all of this in motion so that by Friday, the day of Passover, he would die. Everything is according to his perfect schedule. Going back to our text in Matthew 21, Jesus has been anointed by Mary and here it says, then Jesus sent two disciples. The fact of the matter is that Jesus controls everything, even his crowning. In other words, he initiates everything. We don't know exactly which two disciples he sent, he sent but verse 2 says, go into the village opposite you, and you will find a donkey tied. There and a coat with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Because Jesus knows everything, he would no doubt have known exactly where the donkey and the coat would be and also know who they belong to and could tell his disciples exactly where to go and what to ask for. Mark 11.2 even tells exactly where they are to go. So why would they have to take the coat and its mother? Why not just one or the other? Many of you, I know, are into farming, to husbandry. So you know that you don't take a calf away from its mother, do you? We just came from a trip, and we saw lots of cows on the countryside, and a lot of calves. And I don't think I ever saw a calf far away from its mother. So the two disciples would have taken the coat and its mother. The baby almost always follows the mother. The fact of the matter is that the donkey coat would have been very difficult to get without the mother. Just a little bit more about donkeys. This is donkeyology. You don't see many people who have a pet donkey, do you? As you go down Rosemark, headed toward Austin P, there is normally a donkey out grazing in the yard across from the softball fields. And our family has affectionately adopted him and called him Eeyore after the donkey in Winnie the Pooh. I found the word donkey at least 59 times in the Bible. It says in Job 1 that Job had 500 female donkeys. So in the Bible, it was definitely regarded as an animal of wealth. Donkeys have always been considered the beast of burden. 
A donkey was normally used to carry loads or something of significant weight. We see an example of this in Genesis 22.3 when he saddled and loaded his donkey with food, speak, with wood, speaking of Abraham. Riding on a donkey was not always seen as a sign of humility. Rich people actually rode them as well. The donkey was also used as a symbol of peace. In other words, they used to be considered to be an important animal until Solomon came along and made none other than the horse the animal of honor and dignity and the animal that was used in war. The horse usually, <clears throat> the horse usually symbolized war, but the donkey, peace. So during Jesus' triumphal entry with him riding on the donkey, this was to show that Jesus was and is the prince of peace rather than the captain of a military, mighty military army. So for the most part, donkeys came to be regarded as nothing more than just a stupid beast of burden. I don't know if you have ever stopped to think about it, that the king of kings came being born in an animal feeding trough. Such meekness. And then the sin bearer, the one who would take all of our burdens on himself, was seated on the beast of burdens. Continuing with verse 3, it says, If anyone says anything of you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Mark says in Mark 11, 5 and 6, some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the coat? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them and gave them permission. So not only did Jesus know who owned the animals because he is all-knowing, he also knew what questions the disciples would be asked and knew that the owners would know to give them the animals. We also learn from Mark 11, 2 and Luke 19, 30 that the coat had never been ridden. You may ask, why is that important? It was a gesture of honor and respect and speaks of the fact that the, that particular coat was special and had been reserved just for Jesus. It's just like if you get a, something new for Christmas, a new present. It's new, never been used. It's open. You can say it was a present with Jesus' name on it. The Jews also saw this as an act that was used for holy purposes. Numbers 19.2, Deuteronomy 21.3, and 1 Samuel 6.7. You may be saying, what kind of crowning is this? None like you've ever seen before, my friend. So why did Jesus ride on a donkey during his crowning? Let me tell you why. The answer is given in verses 4 and 5. Jesus rode on a donkey because this took place to, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. It's not rocket science. It's because prophecy said it. This is why he came riding on a donkey. What is meant by daughter of Zion? This is simply another way of saying the people of Jerusalem. They are sometimes called the people of Zion because Zion is the highest and most prominent hill in Jerusalem. The prophet Zechariah had predicted that 500 years earlier that Jesus would be hailed as Messiah and as the king of the people of Zion. 
Further in verse 5, it says that Jesus would be gentle and mounted on a donkey. Gentle speaks of his meekness. I know it may seem odd that the king of kings would make his great appearance seated on a colt rather than a beautiful white stallion or in a royal chariot. That is exactly what Zechariah prophesied, and that is what Jesus did, because this was God's divine plan. At the time of his triumphal entry, he did not come in earthly power or splendor to reign. Jesus came not in riches, but in poverty. He came in meekness and not in splendor. He came as a savior to save all mankind and not to slay Israel's enemies. This was the time of his meek crowning, not his glorification. It is contrary to our thinking to think that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the long and promised Messiah of Israel and the conqueror of the world, whose enemies would come under his feet, would come riding on a donkey's coat. Beloved, that is what the prophet Zechariah said, and that's what came to pass. Jesus is not a cruel and oppressive king. He brings salvation and righteousness. One of my pastor friends made this comment about Jesus in reference to the passage. He says, showing himself a savior, he's not slaying, he's saving. He's not rich, he's poor. He's not proud, he's meek. He's not riding a steed, he's riding a donkey's coat. So by earthly standards, Jesus entering into Jerusalem was not triumphant. But by God's purposes and the standards, it was exactly what it was supposed to be. Jesus coming on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden, was none other than the sovereign choice of God the Father and God the Son, who willingly came to earth as a savior, who was a servant who took on himself the sin of the world. One commentator put it this way, nothing could have been more appropriate than the bearer of the world's sin burden would enter God's holy city of Zion, riding on a lowly beast of burden. The fact of the matter is that the people of Israel wanted a military messiah. Did they not? They wanted one who would come and overthrow the Romans. Jesus came in the very opposite way to show them that he was not in any form or fashion going to do that. Had Jesus come on a white horse with a sword in his hand, they would have known what he was coming to do. However, he came riding on a donkey's coat, without any weapons and lowly, meek, and gentle. He did not come with some great entourage of soldiers. Instead, he came with a bunch of ordinary people following him. Listen, friends, Jesus sovereignly planned it all because all of his life he fulfilled prophecy. Prophecy fulfilled really measured out who he was. Jesus did not come into the world to make war with Rome or the Jews' behalf, but instead he came to make peace with God for men. He did not come into the world to make he came as one offering peace. Back to Matthew 21, verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. Not much to say about that verse. Looking at verse 7, it says, And brought the donkey and the coat and laid their coats on them and sat on the coats. They probably took off their outer robes and put on each of the animals that he would sit on. Either one, so that there would be some material between him and the sweat of the animal's back. Luke 19.35 says he took his seat on the coat with the help of the disciple. They more than likely helped Jesus get up on the coat and the mother donkey would lead the coat along. Thus he fulfills prophecy. 
Now looking at verses 89, which I call the acclamation of praise. Here it says, most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them in the road. This was a very ancient custom coming from 2 Kings 9, 13, which says, then they heard and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. So they were familiar with this custom of throwing down their garments to the king to ride over them. This was reserved for high royalty. This suggested and symbolized that they recognized Jesus' claim to be the king of the Jews. They were in one sense saying that they would respect him and submit to the authority. One commentator even says this about the verse. It was as if they were saying, we place ourselves at your feet, even to walk over if necessary. This is what was happening after King Jehu's crowning. The people were saying to him, I'm under your feet and take a place of submission to you and throw myself at your feet. You may we even walk over me. This was a sense of humiliation. So why the palm branches and not olive leaves? Just a side note about palm trees and palm branches. The palm tree is also called the date palm and it is very characteristic of of Israel. I don't know if you know much about topography. We used to live in California. The topography in Southern California is very similar to that of Israel. It is engulfed in palm trees. Palm trees are a symbol of victory. We see this in Revelation 7-9 where the apostle John says, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. From every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. According to Easton's Bible Dictionary, the palm tree was rising with slender stem 40 or 50 times, even 80 feet aloft, if you can imagine that. It's only branches, the feathery snow, like pale green fawns from 6 to 12 feet long, bending its tops to the palm attracts the eye wherever it is seen. The Greeks and Romans called the whole land of Israel the land of palms. <laughs> Branches of the palm tree were carried at the Feast of Tabernacles, and this is recorded in Levit Leviticus 23.40. From the earliest of times, the palm tree has been associated with the Jewish people. Palm branches appear from early times to have been associated with rejoicing. In Leviticus 23.40, on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Hebrews were commanded to take branches of palms with other trees and rejoice before God. So the palm trees were also symbolic of joy and salvation and signifies the great tribute they were giving to him. They were giving praise to the Messiah and their teacher from Galilee. He was the one who had healed their diseases, taught with great authority, and even raised some from the dead. So with the clothes and the palm branches, it was almost as if they had made a long carpet for Jesus to ride over. So, Hosanna. Hosanna means save now in Psalm 118.25. They're all aware of this, which was very common during the Passover. So now they just see Jesus as a new deliverer, one who can deliver from Rome. They wanted him to establish a kingdom of righteousness and justice where God's people would have special favor. Jesus did not 
come to conquer Rome, but to conquer them from sin and death. One commentator said this, the people wanted Jesus on their, on their terms, and they would not bow to a king who was not of their liking, even though he was their, the son of God. They wanted Jesus to destroy Rome, but not their cherished sins or their hypocritical, superficial religion. They wanted a Jesus who would fix all their problems and to make things hockey-donkey, hockey-dory, and wonderful and deliver them from their enemies. When Jesus came and wiped out their temple, he was essentially saying, you don't need your bondage broken from Rome, but what you need is your bondage broken from sin. He was not so concerned about their external issues as much as he was concerned about their internal issues. They're issues of the heart. And I know that you all have been warned at this pulpit from Pastor Todd about <clears throat> one who says, <clears throat> have your best life now. No, you don't have your best life now. Your best life is to come. And like those who were in the triumphal entry, they were fickle. They would say that they loved Jesus, cry out Hosanna, but the same ones a few days later were crying out for his death. Bring this to a close. Revelation 5, 8-14 says this because it talks about a different types of, of coronation. Revelation 5, 8-14, you may want to turn there if you'd like. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy art thou to take the book and to break his seals. For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four leading creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That is the great coronation to come. That is the great crowning to come. That is what you call a, a coronation. One has to understand that the very first time Jesus came, he came as a suffering servant to bring salvation. The second time Jesus comes, he comes as a conquering king to grant to men his sovereignty. Until you see Jesus as the suffering servant, you will never know Jesus as the sovereign king of glory. So in, in, in Matthew 21, verses 10 and 11, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? So after the great shouts of acclamation had died down, the residents in the city started asking, who is this? The best response that the crowd could give was found in verse 11 of Matthew 21, where it says, 
And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. They had barely finished proclaiming Jesus as the son of David. And now they were saying that he was no more than a prophet who came from Galilee, from Nazareth in Galilee. They had been hailing him as king, no doubt. Some of them were saying they did not really know who he was, which they did. To them now, he was just a prophet from Nazareth. They knew very well who he was. They knew who he was, but refused to believe in him. In the words of Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 9 to 10, they were listening but did not perceive, and they were seeing but did not understand because their hearts were insensitive. They had heard Jesus' message, seen his miracles, and even recognized that he was God, but they refused to embrace him as Savior and Lord. They were more concerned about the material and things on this earth and self-satisfied. They were not so much interested in the kingdom of heaven, but in the kingdoms of this world. They would have taken Jesus to be their earthly king, but not their heavenly king. Let's bring this home. Do you know who he is? The problem with the fickle crowd was that they heard his words, but did not want his kingdom on his turn. They were more interested in the things on this earth, the physical material and things in this life. They were not interested, nor did they care about a spiritual kingdom. That's how it is with Jesus. Just the few who will enter his kingdom. These are the few who embrace him as Lord and Savior. And for the king, that is, he is the king of peace who brings salvation and makes men right with God. Then there's a group of folks who understand intellectually who Jesus is. They see all his credentials, but they are looking for the things of the material kingdom, such as wealth, happiness, and health. Examine your hearts and see where you are today. Let's pray. Father, it's been a weighty message as we think of all that Jesus went through and all that the people were wanting when they wanted temporal peace. They wanted to be rescued from bondage of things that were happening to them, but they would not recognize the bondage of their very own sin. And there are many today, Lord, who stand in that same vein, who want all the things of this world that this world have to offer, but do not recognize their sinful state. May you work in hearts and lives, even during this day, even during this week, as we contemplate all that you did during that blessed holy week. And we pray all of this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.